0: You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferret. Now, Taylor Swift's Eras tour has been taking the world by storm since March. Fans across the U.S. shelled out to see the singer-songwriter who hasn't done a stadium tour since 2018. Face value tickets ran from roughly $50 to $500, but resale tickets famously sold for thousands of dollars on platforms like StubHub. Well, Swifties aren't the only ones feeling the pocketbook pinch. Ticket prices for live entertainment at events are up across the board from football games to theme park admissions. And travel costs are up, too, making it even more expensive to travel out of state for an amusement park or to see if your your favorite band play live. Our next guest wrote a piece about this funflation phenomenon and how it's affecting the way Americans are, well, having fun. We want to hear from you, too, at 800-642-1234. Have the high costs of travel, theme parks, and concert tickets caused you to change your plans or scale back on recreation this year? When do you think it's worth it to save up and shell out for an expensive live performance or a big trip? Did you make it out to a major show or event this year, and did you think it was worth it or not? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Robbie Whelan is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, where he covers the Walt Disney Company and the business of Hollywood. Robbie, welcome to Central Time.
1: Thanks for having me, Shereen.
0: A lot of analysts are talking about the rise of what they call the experience economy. So what is that exactly? And how does it play into the funflation phenomenon?
1: Yeah, well, the experience economy is anything that you have to show up for in person. So that can mean anything from from a live concert to a sporting event, even going to a zoo or a um, or you know an off Broadway show. And um, these events have gotten really, really in demand over the last two years, um, to an extent that has really even surprised the people who put them on and. and the owners of these theme parks, and and, uh, and and what that means is that demands through the roof, so prices are through the roof as well.
0: Why do you think there is such a big appetite for live entertainment right now? What plays into that? There's a
1: couple factors that um, I've come across in my own reporting on this topic. One is that we had, you know, between a year and a half or three years, depending on where you lived in America. Um, of, of really limited options during the pandemic. You were basically glued to your couch if you wanted entertainment. And um, we're still definitely in sort of the, the middle of that pent-up demand kind of unwinding. So for people who who got really frustrated with not being able to go out and experience live entertainment and fun experiences with their friends and family because they were too worried about contracting COVID or, or spreading COVID – um, those folks are out there en masse enjoying themselves. That's one thing. Another thing is just kind of the, the nature of the entertainment business, which has been that there's a lot of competition. Um, uh, there's there's more streaming services available than I can count on both hands. And, uh, you know, a lot of the media companies that sort of produce the entertainment that we consume every day have have really shifted to this mode where they're just, they're, they're investing a lot of money and a lot of effort in producing content for streaming. and when what you've got is kind of uh, this this race to sort of arm up with as much content as possible, um, sometimes it's not very good. Sometimes people get tired of seeing the same sorts of shows over and over again, and they start looking for something new. and I think that a lot of American consumers have found that in in the return of live entertainment.
0: You cover Disney for The Wall Street Journal. Have their prices gone up at their parks?
1: Yeah, Disney, I think, is on their third or fourth round of ticket price increases in the last year and a half. But um, when you look at the numbers on tickets, some of them are kind of eye-popping. I think we've got close to $200 a day on peak days for a single day pass to Walt Disney World in Orlando, which is which is uh, sort of startling when you think about the fact that five or six years ago, it was closer to 100 um, But more important than, I think, the sticker shock of the ticket prices is that Disney And a few of its competitors in the theme park business have have added all these add-ons, usually in the form of smartphone apps, that kind of have become essential to enjoying your day at a Disney theme park. And what I mean by that is there's something called Genie Plus. There's another thing called Individual Lightning Lane. And these are tools that, you know, visitors to a theme park um, get to, to, to help them, you know, wait a shorter line to get on their favorite ride or to skip a line altogether and it's gotten to the point at a lot of these places where I have two small kids. When I go to Disney, I feel like I spend—you know—I go to Disneyland. I feel like I spend most of the day waiting in line. And it sort of—if I didn't have these tools, um, which cost an extra ten or twenty, or sometimes even as high as thirty or forty dollars for individual Lightning Lane—if I didn't have them, my day would be really lousy. Um, and so, in order to have a really great time at these parks, you kind of need to shell out for more for more additional items. And that's on top of the rising prices for plane tickets to get to the parks, hotels to stay at at the end of the day, uh, food that's sold inside the parks, the parks as well, which are also just sort of a victim of generalized inflation pressure.
0: Have those higher prices and add-ons affected attendance or are people still going?
1: People are still going as far as we know. And um you know, there has been some – well, well, that's a complicated question because during the pandemic, almost every theme park saw attendance fall to zero for a certain period of time. Since they've reopened, um, we've seen – fewer, you know, thinner crowds in general, you know, capacity is not being reached as often as it once was, but that's kind of by design. I think a lot of theme park operators, especially Disney have realized that um, if you sort of limit the number of people, you know, limit the size of the crowds and people have a better time and they're, and they're more willing to kind of, uh, purchase, make in-park purchases, that, which are really kind of the bread and butter of, of that business and how it works. However, we have seen that um, in, um, it, over the summer during peak season at Walt Disney World, which is to say around July 4th weekend, crowds had really thinned out um, in a way that was unexpected. So we, we are seeing some sticker shock affecting it. But um, in general, I would say theme park crowds are, are, are down and, and thinner by design.
0: Wall Street Journal reporter Robbie Whelan is our guest today to talk about inflation. The number to call to join in is 800-632-1234. What are we seeing with live sports when it comes to this?
1: Live sports um, are, are getting more expensive. But on that side of things, my impression is that um, that's one of these businesses where, where the cost of fund is rising because the secondary market has really um, grown like crazy. And I, I we look at things like I'm a I'm a season ticket holder here in Los Angeles with uh the uh the LAFC MLS soccer team and we saw phenomena you know phenomena like like Messi, Leo Messi joining the um, Inter Miami team which was a huge jolt to that franchise but also what it meant was suddenly every every time that team played somewhere um ticket prices you know accelerated in they rose really fast because people just simply wanted to see Leo Messi play for his regular team in the US for the first time. So, so and what that meant was obviously the, the, the teams couldn't raise prices just because they had Messi coming to town, but the secondary market um, um, certainly could. And so we saw tickets going for thousands of dollars apiece. And, um, and, and, but in general, the trend in sports is just a um, higher portion of people's wallet being spent on on sporting events and and ticket prices creeping up at a fairly fast pace.
0: Robbie Willen is a reporter at The Wall Street Journal, where he covers the Walt Disney Company and the business of Hollywood. He's here with us to talk about his latest piece on funflation and why live entertainment is getting so expensive. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Are you one of the 60% of Americans who are cutting back on entertainment spending lately? And when it's time to cut back, what are the first things to go for you? What activities stay in the budget no matter what? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in Farab Ferret. We continue our talk with Wall Street Journal reporter Robbie Whelan about funflation and what we're seeing now that live entertainment costs are up. You can join in 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Tom is on the phone with us from Madison. Hi, Tom. Thanks for calling. Good afternoon. Um, certainly, uh, all of these
2: junk fees that are out there in uh, many, many industries are a certain call for a lot of regulation to come about. But um, last summer, my girlfriend and I took a delayed trip uh, due to COVID to Alaska, and we enjoyed ourselves uh, a great deal. It was more than we expected. Um, But uh, I'd go back But we have cut a lot of live music, and the main reason for that is Ticketmaster with all of their legion of fees upon fees upon fees. And I've really decided that even if it's the second coming of Jesus Christ, if Ticketmaster is involved, I'm not going to be there.
0: Tom, thank you for calling. I, I am um, sorry to laugh. That that just made me laugh, though. Robbie, what do you think about what Tom said?
1: Thanks for your for your comments, Tom. I'm sorry that it's gotten so hard for you to afford uh, you know the fees on those tickets. I, yeah. I would say that yeah, junk fees are a very big um, issue in the entertainment world right now, and there's a lot of backlash. And certainly the sort of dearth of competition in the in the ticket pricing services and, and, sorry, distribution services for tickets is a part of that equation. But I would say that even before you get to the level of paying a fee, you know, a ticket fee or whatever kind of fee they come up with to tack on to your price, um, in the price of a live concert ticket um, in the last year rose to about $120, um, which I think was about 17% higher than the previous year. There's just a... Incredible embarrassment of riches in the in the entertainment world. There's these global acts, everything from K-pop to to Latin trap of Bad Bunny, the highest-selling concert tour of the last year, to Beyonce and Taylor Swift, and it kind of just you know it, it goes it sort of trickles down from there. And when you have these kind of like huge spectacles touring the country pretty much constantly, um, you know it costs a lot to put on those tours and and the demand for a one of a kind tour experience is just so high right now and it's hard to see how it comes down i mean as long as in other words as long as the crowds keep on coming the ticket prices will remain higher or even get higher and um when you add the fees into the equation i can see why why uh, you, you're so you're so turned off by the prospect of seeing jesus in concert <laughs>
0: Well, you know that, I mean, of course, if if the tickets are expensive and people are paying it, there's, they're not going to voluntarily go, well, I think I'll make them cheaper now, right? So, I mean, that's, that's a really good point. Let's go to Jeff and Superior. Jeff is with us now. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for calling.
1: Hi. Good afternoon. In the past 20 years, my favorite thing to do is go to the Breeders' Cup. It's actually coming to Santa Anita the first weekend in November. And you can go to horse racing. There are quite a few venues in the United States. Where often you can get in for free or three, four, five dollars, they give you a program, and you can win more money than you arrived with. I I went to New York five years ago and I won three grand.
0: Well, I mean, I, that's that's something. So, I mean, there are some some definitely affordable things, right? I mean, what do you think,
1: Jeff? That's a good point, and um, it's actually interesting to me that you point out an activity that's centered on gambling because. If you look at um, in other parts of Disney's business, for example, um, they just announced a few months ago that ESPN, which is generally understood to be you know the TV the sports network that Disney owns, and is generally understood to be in decline as more people cancel every year their, their cable TV packages, they've just recently announced they're making a big investment in online sports betting and partnering with a uh, with a uh, sports book called Penn Entertainment to sort of draw in more fans, especially younger male fans, who have come to see sports betting as an essential part of the sports viewing experience. So it's interesting to me that one of the things you like to do is go, is go to a, you know, a a horse racing event and, and and bet on the ponies there. And and it's a good point. If think about Vegas, when you go and um, you win a lot at the craps table and you might get a coupon all of a sudden to, to go see Celine Dion that night for free or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. whatever it is to keep you there spending money, whatever it takes to keep you there spending money on betting and making wagers. That is one of the strategies that media and entertainment companies have adopted, you know, really in full force in the last couple of years to kind of offset the, um, the, the, the numbers of consumers that they're seeing who are scared off by high prices. Yeah.
0: Sullivan called from green Bay. Hi, Sullivan. Thanks for, for uh, phoning in.
2: Hi. So, yeah, um, Within the last like, year or two, I've actually gotten into a LARP event, you know, like live action role playing. And there have been a couple events in the nation that, are, that have like, just started popping up within the last like two or three years uh, that have uh, be, uh, been really affordable, like for entry level stuff, on top of other things that are not nearly as great of value.
0: You know, I, I, I it's it's interesting, um, you know, some some there is some affordable stuff out there. And, and I want to bring up a couple of comments that that some uh, people left for us on Facebook. Jacqueline, on Facebook, Sherry,
1: I, can I ask real quick if I could interject? Well, yeah. um, if the caller's still on the line, what kind of LARPing events are we talking about? What sort of uh, is it Star Wars LARPing? Is it Renaissance fair stuff? Yeah. So this is more
2: like medieval. Lord of the Rings, very, very low magic fantasy or you like Game of Thrones type stuff. Hmm.
1: Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I that's a, That's a really interesting point as well. I mean, I think for a lot of people kind of when they're seeking live entertainment, one affordable option is to entertain yourself and um, you know, whether that's getting together with friends to play music and have a jam session versus what you're doing and, and uh, live action role-playing that's, that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, it is pretty cool. Thanks for calling Sullivan. I appreciate that and bringing that up. Um, Jacqueline on Facebook made me laugh, uh, wrote, I can't even afford a vacation to McDonald's Playland. <laughs> David on Facebook agreed. He said "It's it's been too expensive. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I mean, in, in the last minute that we have together, are we are we seeing rising prices even on activities that used to be considered affordable?
1: We definitely are. Um, I spoke to the CEO of the San Diego Zoo and Wildlife Park, which is uh which is, you know, one of the more famous zoos in the, in the country, it's also a nonprofit. And even there, we're seeing a massive, uh, not massive, but we're seeing a steady creep up in ticket prices. And one the interesting thing that he told me was that in, in the face of rising prices, what they're noticing is more people becoming members of the park, which is to say sort of more closely tying their identities and, and, and speaking for more of their free recreation time by going to the same place over and over again, which I think is a trend we're going to see a lot of in the future. You know, if there's something you'd like to do, it's try to find a way to get an annual pass or a membership. Um, But, but yeah, it's definitely true that even, even something like a nonprofit zoo is, uh, is seeing, is seeing the effects of this uh, increased demand.
0: Robbie, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this with us.
1: Thank you very much, Shireen. It was a pleasure.
0: That's Robbie Whelan, Wall Street Journal reporter who covers the Walt Disney Company and the business of Hollywood. We've been talking about the rising costs of entertainment and how Americans have been responding to this so called funflation. Wisconsin businesses are working to learn as much as they can about artificial intelligence. The technology went mainstream last November with the launch of ChatGPT, and it feels like manufacturing and healthcare. It could have a big impact. Joe Schultz has more on what AI could mean for the state's workforce.
3: On the factory floor of KI's Green Bay plant, a robotic arm grabs metal pieces from another machine and drops them into a pile. Like many manufacturers, KI has been using robotics in its processes for years. Alex Peters is the automation engineering manager for the company, which makes furniture for offices and schools. And when he thinks about artificial intelligence, he sees lots of potential.
2: The way that I would enhance this cell with AI is I would use
3: AI to just monitor the production output of this system. Then AI could determine whether this robot's at capacity, if there's spare capacity. It's Peter's job to plan products. how the company will use new technologies to make the plant safer and more productive. And AI's been on his mind a lot lately. For our automated systems on the plant floor, I can see AI being a powerful tool. While Peters and others see opportunities for the technology, one of Wisconsin's largest industries may not be ready for it. A survey of over 400 manufacturing executives found that only 26% were either using or considering AI, and over half say it's not going to have much of an impact on their business. Buckley Brinkman is a Wisconsin manufacturing consultant. At a recent event in Green Bay, he said companies are underestimating the technology's impact.
1: I mean, we're, pretty, we're pretty desensitized to technology that we introduce on the plant floor and eliminates jobs or changes the nature of those jobs. We're not so desensitized when all of a sudden you're a knowledge worker and two-thirds of your job can be done by an algorithm.
3: The healthcare industry is already using AI to diagnose diseases and predict effective treatments. That's according to Missy Hughes with the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation. She points to work being done by the Medical College of Wisconsin as an example.
4: They are using AI to predict and more successfully treat pancreatic cancer, which is one of the deadliest cancers that there is, and they're seeing results using AI.
3: Of course, we're still a long way from having AI replace doctors, but it is being incorporated by industries across the state. Kathy Henrich is with the Milwaukee Tech Hub Coalition. She studied AI and the changing nature of work in graduate school. She says the technology likely won't fully replace humans, but...
4: You're going to augment those uniquely human capabilities with AI. And so those people that can successfully apply AI into their jobs and utilize it are going to be the most productive.
3: Henrich says businesses need to think about how to retrain their workforce to understand AI's capabilities. Earlier uses of robotics and manufacturing led to worry that factories would use the technology to cut jobs. While that happened in some cases, it also changed the types of jobs available. Right now, many Wisconsin businesses are struggling to hire enough workers. Kurt Bauer of Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce says that's a sign AI probably won't displace many workers.
2: When I talk to my manufacturers who are investing in robotics and AI, if it displaces a worker, they reassign them because there's a workforce shortage
5: just kind of go ahead here and talk more broadly
3: about artificial intelligence, and I promise... That's Jake Rohr of the consulting firm Whipley. Um, In September, so he presented to Northeast Wisconsin manufacturing officials. He focused on generative AI, like ChatGPT. It's a form of machine learning that uses data to produce text, video, images, and other content. Right now, Rohr says it's being used broadly, but that could change. Just
5: because there's probably not going to be one tool that everybody uses...
3: Artificial intelligence certainly poses risks. The technology is already being used to write spam emails or to create realistic fake videos known as deepfakes. Despite the risks, many business leaders say the changes AI will make to Wisconsin's workplaces are just beginning to be understood. Joe Schultz, Wisconsin Public Radio.
0: Coming up tomorrow on Central Time, it's Food Friday with a look at the kitchen gadgets that every cook needs. We'll also hear what to expect in Washington now that a new speaker has finally been elected to the House. And spooky insects. Which creepy, crawly pests are you sharing your home with? That's coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward. In for Rob Ferrett, you're with us on the Ideas Network. The state and U.S. Supreme Courts have put judicial politics in the spotlight with major decisions in recent years. We think of the judges and attorneys involved as political appointees and elected officials, but a lot of work goes in behind the scenes that helps shape who gets the opportunity to run for and serve in those roles. New reporting from ProPublica highlights one of the major conservative players in those efforts, Leonard Leo, and how he started his strategy in Wisconsin. They've assembled that reporting into a new podcast. It's called We Don't Talk About Leonard. Here's a listen. The court's current 6-3 to conservative majority that helped deliver those rulings was the product of long-term planning, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and luck. But the full story runs far deeper than that, and a lot of it can be traced back to one man who's marshaled a vast effort to change who serves on the court, what cases they hear, and how they rule.
5: Although Mr. Leo may not be a household name, His influence on America is almost unbelievable.
0: ProPublica found that Leonard Leo's strategy to shape the U.S. Supreme Court started in Wisconsin, where he worked to build a conservative majority on the state Supreme Court, which has a ripple effect on other areas of the court system. We're learning more about how Leo has influenced state and federal judicial politics and the role Wisconsin played in his success And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. What do you think about the way money is involved in races for Supreme Court, Attorney General, and other positions in the court system? What changes would you like to see? Do you think we need to change the nomination or confirmation processes for federal judges? Call us, 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at WPR.org. Andrea Bernstein works for ProPublica and NPR, and she is the co-host of the podcast, We Don't Talk About Leonard. Andrea, welcome to Central Time.
4: Great to be speaking with you.
0: And Andy Kroll is also a reporter for ProPublica and co-host of the podcast. Andy, thanks for joining. Great to be here. So, Andra, who is Leonard Leo? Introduce him as the main character in your reporting.
4: So, Leonard Leo is someone, and to the extent your listeners have heard of him, what they've might have heard was that he was uh, former President Trump's judge whisperer, responsible uh, basically for the nominations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, thus making him one of the people most responsible for the composition of the current court conservative supermajority. And That is pretty much what people know about Leonard Leo. He's not somebody who's had had elective office, who's served on the bench, who's had a title. He's done his work behind the scenes, most of that uh, as executive vice president of the Federalist Society, which is a group that promotes conservatism in law though he's now left and uh, he's running his own business, he's still the co-chair of the board of the Federalist Society. And what we found in our investigation is that Leonard Leo has not just, and sort of use that word just in, in air quotes, been influential at the U.S. Supreme Court level, but also at the level of state Supreme Courts. And one of his earliest and most sustained efforts uh, on that front was in Wisconsin.
0: Well, Andy, before we get into some of the specifics, how would you broadly characterize the influence Leo has had on conservative politics in America overall?
5: I mean, you'd have to look at a bunch of different areas of not just American politics, but American jurisprudence and even society writ large to answer that question. I mean, he has cultivated and elevated an entire generation of young conservative lawyers, basically identifying people when they're in law school and helping them ascend through the ranks until, in some cases, they reach state Supreme Courts, federal courts, or even the United States Supreme Court. So he has really sort of built this pipeline of young future Scalia's, future Clarence Thomas's who are, in turn, changing the direction of the American judiciary, changing the direction of American history, frankly. He has also, however, really pushed the country in the direction of using and embracing huge amounts of money, much of it anonymous and extremely difficult to trace, to fund battles in Supreme Court nominations, to fund battles in state Supreme Court campaigns and elections to empower Republican attorneys general who have been really active at the state level in filing lawsuits and challenging legislation. Uh, you You can see his influence and the imprint of that influence on, again, as Andrea pointed out, not just the Supreme Court, but the state courts, state elections, law schools, and a, a whole bunch of legal positions and offices around the country that, frankly, a lot of people don't think about. They don't think about their state attorney general. They don't think mm-hmm. about their state solicitor general. But Leonard Leo did, and he figured out how to put the right people in his mind in those positions to have a real impact on on the laws and uh, the direction mm-hmm. of this country.
0: Andrea, talk to me a little bit about the Federalist Society. I know that you said that Leo's kind of affiliation with the Federalist, Federalist Society has changed a little bit. But how does that group get involved in Wisconsin politics and, and who or, or what brought them in?
4: So the Federalist Society began in the 1980s and its founders at the time felt themselves as conservative law students and lawyers really out in the cold. They felt that the judiciary uh, was at that time uh, really controlled by the center and the left, and they wanted to create their own pipeline. Uh, But what we have found is that in the the 50 years or so, uh, 40 or 50 years since that started, they have really um, outpaced anything, uh, any structure uh, on the progressive side. And one of the things that was a real insight of Leonard Leo's uh, in the administration of George W. Bush was that he could set up um, a group which has had various names, but at the time it was called the Judicial Confirmation Network, which was there wasn't even really political dark money groups at that time. Mm-hmm. It was sort of pre Citizens United, but this was one of the first, it was a group not the kind of nonprofit that didn't have to disclose its donors and that could uh, raise money and uh, run ad campaigns for um, the first of them were for the u s Supreme Court for the nominations of John Roberts and Samuel Alito to the u s Supreme Court. So once those nominations were uh, successful, the Federal society turned its attention to the state courts and this was back around two thousand and six two thousand and seven. And uh, one of the key things the Federalist Society was focusing on was states that have judicial selections, uh, but it singled out Wisconsin very early on as a state with uh, an election of some import. And the election that was coming up, and many of your listeners will probably remember this race, was the race uh, was when Michael Gableman challenged sitting Justice Lewis Butler in a very... A racially charged campaign. And what you saw was a lot of money coming in and a lot of advertising. And, and we were told by another former uh, Wisconsin justice, Janine Geske, that this was a really a surprise, that they just hadn't seen any race like this that was so negative and so heated. And what we learned in our reporting is that uh, Leonard Leo was involved in raising the money Uh, for the challenger, Justice Michael Gabelman, or then uh, would-be Justice uh, Mm -hmm. Michael Gabelman's race, and had a list uh, of names passed along to the campaign with the message to call these uh, donors, these wealthy individuals, and to tell them Leonard told you to call, and that each of the donors gave the maximum allowable. So this was a really surprising finding, that he was personally involved in this way, that it wasn't just about... um, sort of pushing the courts in a conservative direction, but about uh, getting involved in specific races and pushing specific people uh, in a more conservative and more partisan direction on state Supreme Courts.
0: Andy, do you have a sense of how important it was for Leo to find success in Wisconsin with this strategy and then grow that across the country?
5: Wisconsin is such a launching pad for not just the work that Leonard Leo did, but across you know the different political battles, or across the different um, uh, you know key events that we've had in the last really 15 to 20 years. I mean, you see so much of the political and policy fighting in Wisconsin, and the players involved in those battles, then either take their playbooks and take their money and go to other states, or Uh, or or take those things national in terms of candidates or or elected officials in Wisconsin. I mean, I think another really important part of our story that bears on Wisconsin is the fact that in all of these emails that came out about the John Doe investigations, if, again, WPR listeners probably remember this, Mm -hmm. these were um, ongoing criminal investigations centering around then-Governor Scott Walker uh, having to do with possible campaign finance violations and whether there was illegal coordination happening. And in a trove of documents that came out about this, these John Doe investigations that The Guardian actually first published, what you found, and this is what we wrote about most recently, was Leonard Leo appears in this trove. And so L- Leonard Leo was not only involved in the Gableman-Butler race, which I think is a race to underscore what... Andrea said, it really set a new tone for state Supreme Court elections in other states, not only just in Wisconsin, but in other states as well. And Leo was involved in that. But also you see Leo involved in helping Scott Walker's administration, and especially as it related to the composition of the Wisconsin Supreme Court and how that court would affect the Walker administration when it came to the John Doe investigations. And this is you know, several years after the Gableman-Butler race. And so, again, time and time again, we're seeing Leo and his machine, frankly, paying a close attention to Wisconsin, knowing that, you know, what happens in Wisconsin can happen in other states and that really Wisconsin has been a Republican bastion in certain ways for a number of years and that they needed to succeed there if a sort of larger strategy was going to succeed elsewhere in the country.
0: We're talking with ProPublica reporters Andrea Bernstein and Andy Kroll about their reporting on money and judicial politics and their new podcast. We don't talk about Leonard. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think of the political polarization of Supreme Court justices? Do you think we need to change the way we elect or appoint them? If so, how and what would you see done differently? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email us at ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue this conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Ferret. Right now, we're picking up the conversation with Andrea Bernstein and Andy Kroll. They're both reporters for ProPublica. They've been covering conservative legal activist Leonard Leo and his influence on money in judicial politics in Wisconsin and across the country. You can hear their reporting in their new podcast series, We Don't Talk About Leonard. And we want to hear from you, too. 800-642-1234 is the number to call. What do you think? About the ways we elect and appoint judges and other court officials. What questions do you have about money and judicial politics? The number eight hundred six four two one two three four. That's eight hundred six four two one two three four. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. And another part of Leo's broader strategy is to support specific candidates for attorney general and solicitor general. We touched on that a little bit, but can you can you talk about why those roles matter in this political strategy?
5: State attorneys general are really an overlooked part of the larger legal landscape in this country. I don't think the influence in the role that these AGs play really came into a focus for a lot of people. And maybe I'm speaking for myself a little bit here as well, until the two terms uh, of Barack Obama's presidency. And I zero in on those two terms for a specific reason, which is time and time again, you saw Republican attorneys generals around the country coming together and filing lawsuits, challenging major policies brought by the Obama administration, challenging policies around consumer protection, policies around new banking reforms enacted after the financial crash of 08 and 09, challenging new regulations from the Environmental Protection Agency to try to respond to the climate crisis. AGs, have the, basically the easiest chance to file these kinds of cases. You know, they, they represent the people of their state. They can bring a case as a plaintiff about as easy as any plaintiff and get it before the Supreme court. And what we saw as well during those Obama years was really a sort of organization, a lot of inflows of money, a much more ideological and political strategy to get those AGs to use their power to challenge these major laws brought by a Democratic presidency. And you've seen a little bit of it uh, after that, when Donald Trump was president and Democratic AGs uh, sort of followed that playbook, but it was really pronounced during the Obama years. And Leonard Leo, again, was an instrumental figure, not just in helping elect candidates for AG, as they are in most states, and then getting them in office, but also finding ways to bring those AGs together. And even, as we found in our reporting, Getting on phone calls with attorneys general in Texas or Oklahoma and urging them. Some told us it felt more like pressuring them to bring cases that, you know, were also in the best interest of some of Leonard Leo's biggest donors. Mm. So he's really closely involved with these AGs. I think he recognized their importance earlier than a lot of other people did.
0: Andrea talk a little bit about the US Supreme Court. Justices are appointed by the president once a previous judge retires or dies. Well, so how was Leo able to influence the court's conservative majority from the outside? How did that work really?
4: Yeah, so this is a really interesting thing that um you know we sort of um we sort of kind of knew but really hit home in our reporting is that um it wasn't enough for conservatives and Republicans to have justices that were uh, appointed by Republican presidents. And fairly early on in his career, Leonard Leo came to understand that you could have an appointee of a Republican president sign a decision that he found abhorrent, case in point, the Casey decision, which was authored by three U.S. Supreme Court justices who uh, were appointed by Republicans. That was a decision upholding the legal right to abortion. So Leo set to work on not just having uh, conservative justices, but conservative justices who agreed with his hard-line positions. And this is where the money that he would raise from the Judicial Crisis Network, Judicial Confirmation Network became the Judicial Crisis, crisis Network, came in, that it would influence uh, the passing, uh, the, the confirmation of specific judges. And it would also sort of create a, a pressure uh, in Washington to name these specific people that coupled with having the right cases right for uh, for his p- particular ideological uh, viewpoint, having the right cases come from the right judges and the right attorneys general ensured that he would get the kind of decisions that he wanted. For example, the Dobbs decision overturning abortion uh, was a case that that Leo had championed uh, and celebrated when it passed. These kind of cases don't just happen. They get there because somebody like Leonard Leo and his allies are engineering that they arrive at the U.S. Supreme Court. We've often compared him in our reporting to Robert Moses. He built an infrastructure for the judiciary, and very few people understood that he was doing it until this infrastructure was all built. Hmm.
0: We might think of our public-facing political leaders as having the most influence on politics, but Andy, I'm curious what you think. Do you think Leo is able to have more of a broad influence because he's not in public office?
5: I, I absolutely think that. I think that his decision to operate behind the scenes and to forego credit, or at least not Actively seek out credit for much of the thirty or forty years that he has been doing this work contributed to his success and helped build this influence. That again today um, is pretty much unrivaled among anyone who is not an elected official or a judge on a bench. There really isn't anyone who fills this role, and really hasn't been anyone in history. We talked to historians, we talked to experts on the court, and we would ask them this question you know so who is the predecessor to leonard leo and we would describe all the things leo has done and they would sort of there would be a bit of silence on the other end of the line and they would say you know i don't know if there is someone who, who has who has done what he's done before or since so it's it, it really is a sort of testament to uh, someone who here where i am in washington a town full of people who uh don't want anyone standing between them and a television camera someone who actually is okay with foregoing the limelight and sort of toiling in semi-obscurity you you can get a lot done and you can have a pretty incredible influence and and i think again leonard leo seemed to recognize that from fairly early on and it undoubtedly contributed to the amount of power and success that he has had changing the american judiciary
0: we're growing a little bit short on time here, but we did have a phone call I wanted you to quickly address. Andrea, uh, we had a caller from uh, Mike from Kenosha who – his, his main point is that, well, he appreciates the, the research and he, he, he thinks no one man could really have this much influence, this level of influence on American politics. Briefly, what do you think about that, Andrea?
4: Well, I encourage him to listen to the podcast and read the accompanying article at propublica.org. Uh, just let me give you one quick example. Uh, Leo was, as, um, as we found out, Uh, personally involved in promoting the career of Dan Kelly. I'm sure everybody is familiar with his race. Now, obviously, Dan Kelly uh, did not win uh, his race for judge. Janet Protiziewicz won. But this atmosphere where it's, um, as one uh, justice described it to us, justices are now seen as super legislators rather than independent authorities is a real achievement uh, Mm. of Leonard Leo. And just yesterday in North Carolina, which is another state, uh, same politics as Wisconsin, as one person described it, but different weather, uh, Mm. where Leo worked on the courts. Just yesterday, a newly, a new conservative majority in the Supreme Court uh, saw fruit in a decision that it had made This court had overturned a decision of its predecessor of just months earlier when it was in a Democratic iteration. And just yesterday, North Carolina voted the fruits of that decision, which is a heavily gerrymandered congressional map, which is believed to give right, right. Republicans a three-seat majority. Now, that has I'm, national implications. Yes. I'm going
0: to have to stop you there. We're out of time. But Andrea, Andy, thank you so much. Fascinating discussion. They are reporters for Popublica, and their podcast is called We Don't Talk About Leonard. I'm Shereen Seward, and for Rob Ferrett, you're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network.